Our Lord Turns Defeat into Victory by Fulton J. Sheen Christ Turned Defeat into Victory The world was wrong and Christ was right. He who had the power to lay down his life had the power to take it up again. He who willed it to be born willed to die. And he who knew how to die knew also how to be reborn, and to give to this poor tiny planet of ours an honor and a glory that flaming suns and jealous planets do not share, the glory of one forsaken grave. The great lesson of Easter Day is that a victor may be judged from a double point of view, that of the world and that of God. From the world's point of view, Christ failed on Good Friday. From God's point of view, Christ had won. Those who put him to death gave him the very chance he required. Those who closed the door of the sepulchre gave him the very door that he desired to fling open. Their seeming triumph led to his greatest victory. Christmas told the story that divinity is always where the world least expects to find it, for no one expected to see divinity wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Easter repeats that divinity is always where the world least expects to find it, for no one in the world expected that a defeated man would be a victor, that the rejected cornerstone would be the head of the building, that the dead would walk, and that he who was ignored in a tomb should be our resurrection and our life. Unroll the scrolls of time and see how the lesson of that first Easter is repeated, as each new Easter tells the story of the great captain, who found his way out of the grave and revealed that lasting victory must always mean defeat in the eyes of the world. At least a dozen times in her life of twenty centuries, the world in the first flush of its momentary triumph sealed the tomb of the church, set her watch and left her as dead, breathless and a defeated thing, only to see her rising from the grave and walking in the victory of her new Easter morn. In the first few centuries, thousands upon thousands of Christians crimsoned the sands of the Colosseum with their blood, in testimony to their faith. In the eyes of the world, Caesar was victor and the martyrs were defeated. Yet in that very generation, while pagan Rome with her brazen and golden trumpets proclaimed to the four corners of the earth her victory over the defeated Christ, where there is Caesar there is power, there swept from out of the catacombs and deserted places, like their leader from the grave, the conquering army chanting its song of victory. Wherever there is Christ, there is life. Who today knows the names of Rome's executioners? But who does not know the names of Rome's martyrs? Who today recalls with pride the deeds of a Nero or a Diocletian? But who does not venerate the heroism and sanctity of an Agnes or a Cecilia? And so on Easter Day I sing not the song of the victors, but of those who go down to defeat. In a little city a few hours outside of Paris, a young girl, hidden away in the shadow of the cloister, was pouring out her prayerful life for Christ, and, like her master, going down to defeat in the eyes of the sinful world. Who does not know of the little flower, Therese of Lisieux? She who is defeated in the eyes of the world is the victor in the eyes of God, and so on Easter Day I sing, not the song of the victors, but of those who go down to defeat. Finally, the Easter lesson comes to our own lives. It has been suggested that it is better to go down to defeat in the eyes of the world by accepting the voice of conscience rather than to win the victory of a false public opinion, that it is better to go down to defeat in the sanctity of the marriage bond than to win the passing victory of divorce, that it is better to go down to defeat in the fruit of love than to win the passing victory of a barren union. 
that it is better to go down to defeat in the love of the cross than to win the passing victory of a world that crucifies. And now it is suggested in conclusion that it is better to go down to defeat in the eyes of the world by giving to God that which is holy and totally ours. God desires our will. If we give God our energy, we give him back his own gift. If we give him our talents, our joys, and our possessions, we return to him that which he placed into our hands, not as owners, but as mere trustees. There is only one thing in the world that we can tell, call our own. There is only one thing we can give to God that is ours against his, which not even he will take away. And that is our own will, with, the pow with its power to choose the object of its love. Hence, the most perfect gift we can give to God is the gift of our will. The giving of that gift to God is the greatest defeat that we can suffer in the eyes of the world, but it is the greatest victory we can win in the eyes of God. In surrendering it, we can seem to lose everything, yet defeat is the seed of victory, as the diamond is the child of night. To give our will is the recovery of all our will ever sought, the perfect life, the perfect truth, and the perfect love, which is God. And so on Easter Day, sing not the song of the victors, but of those who go down to defeat. What care we if the road of this life is steep, if the poverty of Bethlehem, the loneliness of Galilee, and the sorrow of the cross are ours? Fighting under the holy inspiration of one who has conquered the world, why should we shrink from letting the broad stroke of our challenge ring out on the shield of the world's hypocrisy? Why should we be afraid to draw the sword and let its first stroke be the slaying of our own selfishness? Marching under the leadership of the captain of the five scars, fortified by his sacraments, strengthened by his infallible truth, divinized by his redemptive love, we need never fear the outcome of the battle of life. We need never doubt the issue of our of the only struggle that matters. We need never ask whether we will win or lose. Why, we have already won. Only the news has not leaked out yet. Reparation by Bishop Fulton J. Sheen The past stays with us in our habits in our consciousness of remembered guilt, in our proclivity to repeat the same sin. Our past experiences are in our blood, our brains, and even in the very expression that we wear. The future judgment is also with us. It haunts us, causing our anxieties and fears, our dreads and preoccupations, giving us insecurity and uncertainty. A cow or a horse lives for the present moment without remorse or anxiety. But man not only drags his past with him, but he is also burdened with worries about his eternal future. Because the past is with him in the form of remorse or guilt, because the future is with him in his anxiety, it follows that the only way man can escape either burden is by reparation, the making up for the wrong done in the past and by a firm resolution to avoid such sin in the future. How do we make reparation? Disposing of the past is the first step to take, and in taking it the important Distinction between forgiveness and reparation for sin should be remembered. Some who have done wrong mistakenly think that they should only forget it, now that it is past and done with. Others believe falsely that once a wrong deed has been forgiven, nothing further needs to be done. However, both of these attitudes are incomplete as they lack in love. We all will have to unite our cross with our Lord on the cross, in order to use it to purchase our eternal salvation. About a year ago, 1970, I was talking to Pope Paul VI, and I said to him, You are well named. He was named Paul. Paul went from city to city, was stoned from Lystra to Derby to Antioch to Pisidia, and so I said, You are stoned by your own. Yes, he said, I open my mail at midnight, and in almost every letter is a thorn, and when I put my head on my pillow, 
An hour or two later, I really lay it down upon a crown of thorns. But, he said, I cannot tell you what ineffable joy I have to suffer. Then Pope Paul VI quoted to me the 24th verse of St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I suffer all of this for the sake of the church, said the Pope. That is how we use suffering. I think the great tragedy of the world is the suffering that goes to waste. People suffer, and they have no one whom they can love to suffer for. Love does not kill the pain, but diminishes it. Our Lord, in instituting the sacrament of penance, made it clear that there is a difference between forgiveness and the undoing of the past. That is why confession is followed by absolution, or forgiveness, and why, when absolution has been given, the confessor says, for your penance say. Then he tells the penitent what prayers to say or what good actions to perform to make atonement for his sins. The high reasonableness of this is apparent if we translate the offense against God into purely human terms. Suppose that I have stolen your watch. When my conscience finally pricks me, I admit it all to you and say, Will you forgive me? No doubt you will, but I am sure that you will also say, Give me back the watch. Returning the watch is the best proof of the sincerity of my regret. Even children know there must be a restoration of the balance or equilibrium disturbed by sin. For instance, a boy who breaks a window playing ball often volunteers, I'll pay for it. Forgiveness alone does not wipe out the offense. It is as if a man, after every sin, was told to drive a nail into a board, and every time he was forgiven, a nail was pulled out. He would soon discover that the board was full of holes which had not been there in the beginning. Similarly, we cannot go back to the innocence that our sins have destroyed. When we turn our backs upon God by sinning against him, we burned our bridges behind us. Now they have to be rebuilt with patient labor. A businessman who has contracted heavy debts will find his credit cut off until he has begun to settle the old obligations. He cannot carry on his business. Our old sins must be paid for before we can continue with the business of living. Reparation is the act of paying for our sins. When that is done, God's pardon is available to us. His pardon means a restoration of the relationship of love, just as if we offended a friend. Do not, we do not consider that we are forgiven until the friend loves us again. God's mercy is always present. His forgiveness is forever ready, but it does not become operative until we show him that we really value it. The father of the prodigal son has forgiveness always waiting in his heart, but the prodigal son could not avail himself of it until he had such a change of disposition that he asked to be forgiven and offered to do penance as a servant in his father's house. So long as we continue our attachment to evil, forgiveness is not imp is impossible. It is as simple as the law, which says that living in the deep recesses of a cave makes sunlight unavailable to us. Pardon is not automatic to receive. We have to make ourselves pardonable. The proof of our sorrow over having offended is our readiness to root out the vice that caused the offense. The man who holds a violent grudge against his neighbor, who confesses it in the sacrament of penance, cannot be forgiven unless he forgives his enemy. If you do not forgive, your Father who is in heaven will not forgive you your transgressions either. See Mark chapter 11, verse 26.